meant to announce to you earlier that we're going to have a Christmas Eve service at 5 o'clock on Wednesday. So Christmas Eve service, 5 o'clock on Wednesday come. It's going to be lots of fun. Secondly, I wanted to encourage you to read ahead for next week. We've been visiting some famous texts in the Bible, and we're going to continue to do that on Christmas Eve. Uh, And so I figured we'd balance it out by picking a text that is almost never preached. And when I say almost never, I mean never. I would be willing to bet a whole lot of money that none of you have ever heard it preached before. And so to help absorb some of the shock from maybe what you didn't know was in the Bible, I'm going to encourage you to go ahead and read Genesis 38 this week. Again, that's Genesis chapter 38 this week to to get ready for the message next week. And you might read it and your eyes might get real big and you might think, how does this have anything to do with my life? But I assure you, it does. And it's going to be awesome. This morning, though, We are in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. That's Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. And it's the Christmas season. And we all know that that means one thing. Really big movie releases, right? I mean, as of Thursday, we were a year away from the new Star Wars movie. I know all of us are very excited about that. I am, anyway. Uh, This year, the big release was the last installment of The Hobbit. I don't know if any of you have seen that yet. I'm hoping to sometime soon. And so I figured we would uh, make use of Tolkien this morning by way of introducing our text. You see, this installment of The Hobbit is sure to come with the joy of one of those happily ever afters or a happy ending. And, And Tolkien coined a term for happy endings when he was still alive. He said that, All complete fairy stories must have a eucatastrophe, which means the good catastrophe. It's a sudden and joyous turn, a sudden and miraculous grace, never to be counted on to recur again. It does not deny the existence of sorrow and failure. The possibility of these is necessary to the joy of deliverance. It denies, in the face of much evidence, if you will, universal final defeat. And is good news, giving a fleeting glimpse of joy, joy beyond the walls of the world. You see, Tolkien believed that the Christian story is, quote, the greatest and most complete conceivable eucatastrophe. The joy we experience at the sudden climactic turn from evil to good, from death to life, from utter darkness to brilliant light is a gleam or an echo of the gospel in the real world. Says Tolkien, the birth of Christ is the eucatastrophe of man's history. The resurrection is the eucatastrophe of the story. The incarnation. This story begins and ends with joy. It is preeminently the inner consistency of reality. There is no tale ever told that men would rather find was true and none which so many skeptical men have accepted as true on its own merits. See, Tolkien believed that the good news of the gospel story was the story underneath all stories. In other words, all good stories, the ones with the happy endings, are pointing us to the greatest story, the great eucatastrophe of history, the life and death of Jesus Christ. I think Tolkien is on to something good here because I think within each and every one of us is this innate longing for the end of evil and suffering. We all long for a happy ending, and the gospel gives us both. Christmas is a a season that reminds us of this. 
also gives us a reminder of both darkness and light. I think for many, Christmas is a season wherein they've lost loved ones. And for others, it's a, it's a season where they feel the weight of loneliness. It's a season where the darkness is evident to them. For others, it brings back memories of family meals and giving gifts, the scent of warm cookies, and the taste of hot cider. Though many of us have different associations with Christmas, I think one that we all share in common is that we associate Christmas with lights that are put on homes, hung on trees, and displayed in stores around the country. I think this is appropriate because Christmas is God's plan to do something about evil and suffering and death. It's God's plan to deal with these things for good. See, Christmas is about dealing with darkness. It's about the beginning of the end of evil and the sure hope of a happy ending. And so as we look at Luke this week, chapter 2 in the first 20 verses, I want you to keep this one big thing in mind or this one main idea, and that's that Jesus brings joy. Jesus brings joy. And we're going to work through the text in four parts. The light of the world in the first seven verses. In verses 8 through 14, we'll see the response of heaven. In verses 15 through 20, we'll see the response of shepherds. And in verse 19, we're going to look at it a little bit closer. We'll see the response of Mary. So the light of the world, the response of heaven, the response of shepherds, and the response of Mary. Before we go there, let's pray together this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you you do bring joy. We ask this morning that you would give us a fresh experience of your grace, that you would quicken our hearts and sharpen our minds. Help us to ponder and to treasure your word. We thank you that you accept us despite our failures and our brokenness. Thank you that right relationship with you is for bad people like us that have trusted in you by faith. Father, the Christmas season We ask that you would keep us from being desensitized to the stories that we've heard many, many times. Lord Jesus, remind us that you're not only a baby wrapped in clothes lying in a manger, but you're also the Savior outside an empty tomb. Now at the Father's right hand, ever living and pleading for us. Jesus, we thank you that you are our advocate. We thank you that you are our God. We thank you that you are our king and that you are our joy. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. So let's look at these first seven verses. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Corinus was governor of Syria. I worked on that name all morning. Corinus is how you say it. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he he was of the home and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So Luke gives us, in these first five verses, he gives them to us to show us that the events about which he's going to tell us are historical events, that they happened in rhythm, with all the prophecies that they fulfill. 
The mention of Corinus, though, is somewhat problematic for a variety of reasons, but primarily because Jesus is born somewhere in 4 AD-ish during the reign of Herod the Great, and Corinus doesn't show up as governor until about 6 AD. Now, there are a great number of solutions to this issue, and some say the text should be translated so that it reads, this was the registration before Corinus, before he became governor, while others say he was an important administrator prior to becoming governor that would have been associated with the census. Still others that he was governor more than once. If you're interested in all the various solutions to this problem, I've included box excursus at the uh, end of my manuscript, which will be posted online, so you can have your curiosity satiated there. For now, the point of bringing up Corinus and Caesar Augustus and all those fun characters is to to point out that these events are historical. The point is, Luke wants us to know that they happened in space and in time, that it's a true story he's telling us. And his goal from the start has been, from early on in the first five verses of chapter 1, is to give us an orderly account of what's happened. He wants to give us certainty concerning that which has been taught. He wants to give us certainty about Jesus. And so he roots the birth narrative in history. He wants us to know that the story of Jesus is true. I do think it's interesting that he mentions Caesar Augustus, who is known for his reign of peace. I find it interesting that during the period of the emperor known for his reign of peace, God raises up the prince of peace. I just think that's neat. Anyhow, now that Luke has established the historical setting, he tells us in verses 6 and 7, And while they were there, the time came for her, that's Mary, to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. God's promise is fulfilled here. In these two verses, we see kind of one of the climaxes of Scripture. God has kept his word. He is reliable. He is faithful. The son of God has been born in the city of David, the true son of David. Notice there's not a ton of detail here, though. So I want to encourage you to erase the gushy and soft, sentimental caricatures we often have of Jesus' birth from your minds. Get rid of the picture of the harsh innkeeper in a contemporary stable. They're unbiblical and they're unhelpful. They stray from Luke's intent. Joseph and Mary are staying in and having a child in an ancient stable. Ancient stables are not nice. They're not like the barns we have today, which were nicer than some of the houses they used to live in. It's not a nice place. In fact, caves were commonly used for stables. And the earliest Christian traditions associate Jesus' birth with a cave purposed as a stable. So here's the reality of the situation for Joseph. He doesn't have the clout, the connectivity, the network, or the money to put a roof over his pregnant wife's head. It's not a pretty picture. They have to stay in a cave that's purposed as a stable. Wouldn't you know, Mary's time comes. The heir to David's throne, the king of the cosmos, the god of the universe... Born in a cave, placed in a feeding trough. 
the nativity scene is not perfect lighting and smiling cows and everyone singing, Kumbaya, my Lord. That's not what's going on. The whole point of the nativity scene is that it's cruel. The whole point is that it's brutal. The nativity is brutality. Here, even in the birth of Christ, Luke is pointing us to his death. The nativity scene shows us that already Jesus is marginalized, rejected, seen as insignificant. We see Jesus' whole life in seed form as he's placed in a manger. Men will not welcome him. He will be rejected, treated with contempt, and laid down on wood by his own people. At his birth, it is the wood of a manger, and at his death, it is the wood of a cross. This is not what we expect. This is the child of God. This is the one who is to bring life to all men. He's supposed to be the one that ends evil. He's supposed to reign on the throne of David forever. His kingdom is supposed to have no end. Why, why wasn't he born in a palace? I mean, why didn't he come as a general and a conqueror of evil? Why didn't he arrive in tights with an S on his chest like Superman? Why didn't he come with fire in his eyes and a sword in his hand to end it all in one swoop? See, because if Jesus Christ had come the first time to destroy all of the sources of evil, there wouldn't be any of us left. If you think that's unfair or an exaggeration, you don't, you don't know your own heart. See, there's real darkness in all of us. Real evil. We all, in the depths of our hearts, want to be our own gods, our own boss, if you will. We want to tell God that He is not king and that we are. We call the shots in our lives. He doesn't define what life is. I do. We want to live life our own way rather than His. And this is sin. God tells us not to eat from the tree and we want to eat. It's disobedience. Sin is opposed to God and his design for life. It fractures everything. It fractures our relationship. It propels evil forward. And when we're left to our own way of sin, we become more and more evil until we find ourselves in hell, alienated from other people and eternally separated from God. Jesus Christ came the first time Not to bring judgment, but to bear judgment. He came the first time to be rejected, not accepted. To be destroyed and killed, not crowned. He came not to bring judgment, but to bear judgment. He did this so that we don't have to be separated from God. He did this so he could destroy evil without destroying us. He becomes like us and lives the life that we were supposed to live. Dies the death that we all should die. He's born in a cave and buried in a cave so that we don't have to be. He took the rejection we deserve for our self-centeredness, for our wrongdoing, for our sin, so that someday he can return and end evil and suffering without ending us. Jesus came to give us true happiness, wholeness, satisfaction. He came to give us himself. You know, we were created to worship God and to live in intimate relationship with him. And it's only by grace through faith 
in Jesus Christ that we can live like we were meant to. That we can find true satisfaction. This is good news. Jesus brings joy. How will you respond to Jesus? Has he brought you joy? Look with me at verse 8 and we'll see how heaven responds. And in that same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over the flock by night. Got some shepherds here. They're doing their jobs. They drew the, the short straw, and so they're working midnight on Christmas Eve. It's no good. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. As if that weren't obvious, Luke tells us. Hey, these angels showed up. They were pretty afraid. Thanks, Captain Obvious. Thanks for that one, Luke. Good commentary. Fear not, says the angel, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you this day in the city of David is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Notice these titles, Savior, Christ, that's Messiah, the Lord. These three titles reveal how great this child will be. He's the awaited Messiah King who will save his people. He's God himself. The shepherds probably didn't have time to work through the implications of the titles or to grasp all that there was. Because they're told how they can find this baby. They're told to look for a sign in verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Just as the words finish coming out of the angel's mouths, I, I picture it anyway. The curtain of heaven is pulled back and that which is unseen is made visible to the shepherds. And we see verse 13. And suddenly there was an angel with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. God has kept his promise. He sent a rescuer for his people and the host of heaven responds with rejoicing, with singing. How will you respond? Look at how the the shepherds respond to all this in verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. The shepherds have decided to check out what all this is about. They want to go and see this king that is born. They're going to pursue what the Lord has made known to them. A quick application here is to simply pursue what God has made known to you. He's revealed himself in his word and in his church. You should consider those things. You should pursue him there. Verse 16, and they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. All who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. The shepherds believe, they see, they hear, and they testify. They see the host of heavens and the angels and Jesus. They hear the message of the good news and great joy. They testify about who this child is and who he will become. You sit there and say, yes. If angels showed up at my day job and 
they told me the news that brought great joy, then I would believe too. If God would show himself, I would certainly believe. And I would say to you, that's probably not true, A. And B, God has revealed himself to you in an even more personal way, in a better way. Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21, We, speaking of himself and the other disciples, did not follow cleverly devised myths. It's not a made-up story. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were there. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. And we, those of us that were there, the eyewitnesses, have something more sure. The prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention. As to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God has revealed himself to you in his word. Peter is saying, if I got in a time machine, went back to the time of Christ and recorded his whole life on my cell phone, then got back in the time machine, came right back to this moment. Who knows? Maybe I have a time machine. Maybe I did that. And showed it to you that it wouldn't be as good as reading his word. He's saying you a video of Jesus' life would be less certain, less sure, less reliable than reading your Bible. Peter is saying that your Bible is more reliable to who Jesus is than if you were there. He's saying, look, I was an eyewitness, but the prophetic word is more sure. It's better than actually being there. It's the whole counsel of God. The shepherds, Moses, Peter, Paul, they all saw miracles of God firsthand. And God has made himself knowable to us through their writings, through his word, through hearing the gospel. Faith comes by hearing. Yes, the shepherds had angels, but notice in the text, everybody else, they just get the shepherds. They, the shepherds, made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. We have better than the shepherds had. We have the writings of Peter and of Paul and of Moses. We have the whole counsel of God in our Bible. God has made himself known. Have you taken the time to pursue him? Have you taken the time to check it out, to get to know him? Shepherds not only believe his message as we see, but they tell others about this good news. And this principle applies to us. When you come to know Jesus, when you really experience him, you can't help but share the good news with others. And I've quoted Lewis many times on it, and I'll do it once more. He says that praise is the culmination of joy. If Jesus is your joy, if you're caught up in the wonder of the good news like the shepherds, you will tell people about him. You'll talk about him. Since it's Christmas, we'll say that you'll go tell it on the mountain. 
over the hill and everywhere. That's the result of knowing Jesus. Heaven responds with singing and you will sing in your heart and you will tell others about Jesus. You can't help it. He's so good. You have to culminate that joy. You have to fully experience it by sharing it with others and with one another. It's important to note, though, that we not only testify about Jesus by proclaiming the good news, but also by living the good life, the godly life. And for those of you that were here last week, by living the wonderful life. We testify to the truth of the gospel when we live out our faith in our homes, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our churches. Our lives and our words both speak to the goodness of God. Our lives, especially when they image his design for life. We live out the gospel by repenting and forgiving quickly in all of our relationships. And this should be especially evident in God's church. Wherein he testifies to his goodness. He testifies to the good news of the gospel, not when we're perfect or when we're, <laughs> we're not perfect. We're far from that, right? He testifies to his goodness when we're serving one another in love. When we're admitting that we're broken people in need of help. When we're saying, brother, sister, I need your prayers. I need your help. I need your forgiveness. We image the gospel best when we are saying, brother, sister, I will pray with you. Will you pray for me? I will bear this burden with you. Will you help me? I will forgive you as God has forgiven me. Will you forgive me? Are you testifying? Are you showing with your life and telling with your words about the good news that brings joy? Shepherds in this text provide a good model. True disciples see who Jesus is. They behold him in his word. They hear his words and repent and by faith, placing their faith in him, become Christians and thus they testify about Jesus. True disciples see, hear, and testify about Jesus. Notice, too, the response of Mary in verse 19. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. I, think, I read this verse, and I almost immediately think of the evangelifish, cheesy, like Christian coffee mug, like a big, hard, and cursive writing that says, treasure these things. And there's probably an eagle on that thing. I feel like all Christian mugs have to have an eagle somewhere on them. Got like a flower handle. I'd set it next to my Joy of the Lord mug. I have a Joy of the Lord mug. That's what comes to my mind, but, but that's, that's off topic. But also, I want you to put that kind of sentimentality from your mind. It's just like the nativity scene. You shouldn't easily look over it or dismiss it. These words should be appreciated. I mean, throughout this section of Luke, Mary has been highlighted as an example of how true disciples respond to God. She hears, believes, she trusts, she obeys. I mean, earlier in chapter 1, Gabriel shows up. He announces all these things that are going to happen to her. And she says to him, Behold, I am your servant. I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She's treasuring and pondering. Luke is showcasing her as a model of faithfulness. So let's ask what we can learn from her. First, I think that we can learn there is always something more to learn about the gospel. It's multifaceted and wonderful. I always say it like this, the gospel is shallow enough for a child to play in, and at the same time, it's deep enough to drown an elephant. 
Mary doesn't interrupt the shepherds or say, hey, I don't need this word from you. I don't need you to tell me about my own kid. After all, an angel appeared to me. A kid grew in my womb. I have it all together. I'm the model of faithfulness after all. No. Mary listens. Really listens. It's like the good soil from the parable of the sower that we visited in Mark not so long ago. She hears the word and allows it to grow within her. She ponders it in her heart. This means she's connecting the dots of her own situation and the message of God. She's mulling over God's word in her heart. More, she's treasuring it. She's meditating on the word of God and she's applying it to her life. She treasures these things. You can think of the word treasure here as more an emotional word that speaks to the heart. I mean, to treasure literally means to keep something alive, to keep a, like a fire alive by feeding it. She's feeding her experience of God. We're told she doesn't just ponder the word and the message of God. She doesn't just know it cognitively, but she fans it into flame in her heart. She takes it all the way down into herself until she relishes it, until she experiences it, until it means everything to her. Until she senses the reality of the truth of the good news on her heart. Like Mary, we can ponder and treasure the word of God. Let me ask you, can you hold your attention with the word of God? Can you interest yourself in it? Can you sit down and treasure and ponder and bring forth the truth of the Bible into your own heart, screwing it down until it catches fire in your mind, in your will, in your emotions? I think it's funny how we, uh, we can memorize the names of Santa's reindeer. Dasher, Dancer, Prancer, Vixen, Comet, Cupid, Donner, Blitzen, Rudolph. But not the names of the disciples. How we can remember whole songs, but not a single psalm. I think something that's true is what you think about, what you ponder, what you treasure... That, that reveals what you love. Your thoughts will reveal what you love. So what do you think about? What do you meditate on? What do you ponder? Is it the good news? Is it the goodness of God? Do you love the word of God? Or something else? Does the word become flesh? Does Jesus bring you joy? Or are you looking for joy elsewhere? Christmas is about the beginning of the end of evil and the beginning of a happy ending for all of those that are in Christ. Christmas is about God acting to rescue his beloved, acting to rescue you if you've trusted in him. It's about Jesus, the light of the world, stepping down into darkness and taking the darkness for us so that we can have life and light. Christmas is about Jesus bringing joy to the world by entering the world in order to save the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people have loved the darkness rather than the light because their own works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Believe in the Son of David. Be born again as a lover of the light rather than a lover of the darkness. Friend, come to the light this morning. Enter into the joy of knowing Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for coming to earth and for being born into cruel circumstances. Thank you for suffering so that when we suffer, we are made more like you. We thank you for dying in our place so that when we die, we live. We thank you for telling us the truth about ourselves, that we are more wicked than we ever dared hope and more loved than we ever dared dream. We thank you for defeating death in your resurrection and for inviting us to share in that resurrection life with you in the catastrophe of history when you return, not to bear judgment, but to rightly adjudicate and administer justice. We thank you for lighting up the darkness here. Pray that you would make us all lovers of the light. We ask that you would change us all by this great news that brings joy. Help us to ponder and treasure these things, to ponder and treasure Jesus this morning. We ask it all in his glorious name. Amen.